Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter him in a diverse community and participate with him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Uh, and for those of us uh, still here, we are going to continue our series on the book of Numbers. Um, and this story uh, is such a wild, twisty, and turny story. Um, last week we had um, flesh-eating earthquakes. <laughs> uh, and today we will have something very different, um, something that seems like outrageously the opposite um, in Numbers chapter 17. Um, but before I read the text, I just wanted to share with you, I went for a, a hike uh, maybe a week or so ago with uh, Jeremy Klager, amazing, extraordinary photographer. And we were talking... We were talking about a kid's Christmas play and sort of how do you continue to communicate the Christmas story in new and fresh ways and ways that are like engaging for children but so profound for us. And Jeremy kind of gave this small sermon. I'm not sure he realized uh, that he did, but he was talking about um, a Richard Rohr book that he had read and he said, um, the difference between a sin-soaked world and a Christ-soaked world. Uh, and his, his line was that, or what he was learning was that we often walk around as if our, our world is sin-soaked and we look for it and we expect it and we anticipate it and uh, we see ourselves as a part of it and then we just hope that one day like a, a little drop of Christ would come and nourish this sin-soaked place. But actually, if you read the Gospels, you see that it's the other way, that our world is indeed Christ-soaked that Christ is all around us and we can learn about Christ and hear from Christ and encounter Christ everywhere. Um, but we don't anticipate that, we don't look for that and we don't see ourselves as a part of it. Uh, and so I was reminded of this uh, quote by Richard Rohr uh, and, and Jeremy really inspired me. This has been on my mind a lot and this is exactly what the text in Numbers does. But uh, it says, once we know that the entire physical world around us, all of creation, is both the hiding place and the revelation place for God. This world becomes home, safe, enchanted, offering grace to any who look deeply. I call that kind of deep and calm seeing contemplation. And so today we seek to find the God who's hiding right in our midst. Where we are in the book of Numbers, um, as you know by, very well by now, is they're, they're wandering. They're wandering in the wilderness. And the wilderness is not a place uh, where we expect life. Um, there's no rivers. There's no water. There's no food. There's no trees. Um, it's a scorched place that is truly lifeless. Uh, and so nobody chooses to be there. And that can be a real physical place. Many people in our world today live in such a place. Um, it can also be a, a psychological space that we find ourselves in. Um, and it's interesting because at the beginning of the Bible, we encounter this radically opposite place called Eden, where there's an abundance. There's healing rivers and, and, and trees that grow more than enough food to sustain um, the humans. And there's this kind of promise of abundance and life and fertility. And um, the humans are naked and they're unashamed. There's no judgment. There's no competition. There's no jealousy. There's no fear of there not being enough. Um, just this intense trust towards one another in a real sense that God was literally physically right there in their midst, that that was where God lived. Um, and then at the end of the book of Genesis, um, they're in a place that's not Eden and it's not the wilderness. It's Egypt, this big city. 
and it's close. It's an illusion of Eden. There's food for most, not all. There's security for some, not all. Uh, and there are, uh, there's an abundance uh, for some, not all. Uh, and so for those who live in that privilege of abundance and, um, you know, they have storehouses and whatnot in Egypt, life probably seems pretty great for them. But of course, we know from the biblical story, there are many uh, who did not find that place to be great. And those people um, cried out and God heard their cries and sent Moses to rescue them from Egypt and then bring them to the wilderness. And so the dream is to get to Eden. <laughs> not the wilderness, but uh, in the moment, in the, in the story of the Exodus, they just needed out of Egypt. And so it's this very interesting thing. Here we are in the wilderness, and the people quickly forget how much they hated Egypt, and they forget uh, the dream of Eden. And so, of course, every story so far that we've encountered is filled with um, grumbling, complaining, um, criticizing, uh, distrust, shame, um, anger, fear, scarcity. And it's interesting that in that place, um, the thing that happens in the people's mind and happens in our mind too is uh, nostalgia. <laughs> nostalgia for Egypt. Nostalgia for that place that we used to be. And, and it's amazing how that nostalgia is a trick. It's tricky because you quickly forget, you mythologize a past reality. Uh, and, and in mythologizing it, you forget that when you were there, you complained a lot. <laughs> we cried out a lot. And so it's interesting. And there's a moment, and it's really profound. It's in the book of Numbers, where they make the full flip to nostalgia. And then nostalgia holds their imagination captive. Um, the text is in Numbers 16. I read it last week, but I don't think this one line really jumped out at us. And so I was going to launch from that into the, the text in Numbers 17. So um, I believe it's the next slide. In Numbers 16, it says this. Uh, Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram. Eliab's sons. But they said, they're speaking to Moses, we won't come up. Isn't it enough that you've brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey? That description has always been reserved for the promised land. That's a description in the Bible, the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. That's the land we're headed to. That's where we're going. That's like Garden of Eden. We've heard this, this story, this line, this description of that place God will bring us is something our ancestors have passed down to us. But here in the midst of the wilderness, they switch the script and forget. And suddenly Egypt, the place we just were, the place we just came from, that's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's so profound. You've brought us, Moses, we're mad at you. You didn't rescue us from a land of uh, scarcity and, and anxiety and oppression and like division and stratification and, you know, hoarding of resources by some, uh, you brought us up from the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert. And they say it again, um, so that you would also dominate us. This is the story now. You brought us out of that place so that you could dominate us. Moreover, you haven't brought us yet to a land full of milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of field and vineyard. Their imagination now belongs to Egypt. That was the land flowing with milk and honey. And so immediately after this story in number 17, uh, number 16, we have number 17. So uh, is that on the slide? Yes. Um, I'll read it, and then you can go back to that almond picture, because I guess it's in the wrong order. In number 17, and this is the entire of no entirety of number 17. It fits on one slide. This is the whole chapter. It's very short. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses 
Speak to the Israelites and take from them a staff from each household, so a big dead stick. From each of the chiefs of their households, 12 staffs. Write each person's name on his staff. Write Aaron's name on Levi's staff, for there will be one staff for the leader of each household. Then you will place them in the meeting tent in front of the chest containing the covenant where I meet you. The staff of the person I choose will sprout. Then I will rid myself of the Israelites' complaints that they make against you. So Moses spoke to the Israelites, and each of their chiefs gave him a staff, one staff for each chief and his household, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was with their staffs. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the meeting tent. The next day, Moses entered the covenant tent, and Aaron's staff of the Levi's household had sprouted. It grew shoots, it produced blossoms, and it bore almonds. Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to the Israelites. They saw what happened, and each person took back his staff. Then the Lord said to Moses, Return Aaron's staff in front of the chest containing the covenant to serve as a sign to the rebels so that their complaints against me uh, will end and they will not die. And so Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him. And so you can go back to the last photo. This is a branch of an almond tree that has already sprouted leaves, blossomed flowers, and then produced fruit. Growing up in Alberta, I've never seen a, an almond tree in, in real person, so I wanted to put a photo up. I can't believe that you could just live in a place where you could eat nuts off the tree. I don't know, if maybe you have to roast them or something. But anyway, I feel like almonds are full of protein and, and healthy fats, and like, wow, what a, a rich source of life on almond branch. And it's amazing that in one night, this stick, this completely lifeless dead stick, um, blossomed, sprouted, and grew, and even produced fruit. This wasn't a glimpse of life. That stick would have been heavy laden with fruit. And it was this, there's no rhyme or reason. It, we didn't water it, we didn't fertilize it, we didn't graft it onto another tree. This staff miraculously sprouted with life, burst with life, um, aggressively full of life. It's just obnoxious. The, the, the Hebrew, too, is just this rich, um, it, was, it was more than you ever could have asked for or imagined. And it became a symbol. And it was not, I'm not going to end your complaints by smiting you and judging you and hurting you. I'm going to end your complaints by mystifying you with the miracle of life. <clears throat> and so um, this stick that's completely dead, this stick that represents leadership, uh, grows with life. And staffs have been a significant thing. I don't know how well you know your Old Testament, but in the book of Genesis especially, um, the staff, when Moses and Aaron are confronted um, King Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt, um, the staff became a snake. Uh, and then, you know, Moses picks it up by the tail, which that's not good to do with snakes, and it became a staff again. Um, it was Moses' staff that was used to part the sea. Uh, and here we have the staff of Aaron budding, blossoming, full almond clusters. It's quite incredible. <clears throat> There's something thematic here, though, and I think I wanted to just um, go over something with you. You can go to the next slide. It's just a picture of a tree after the text. Um, in the Garden of Eden, there are two trees. One is the tree of life, and if you eat the fruit of the tree of life, um, you live forever. Uh, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you're not supposed to eat the fruit from that tree. So presumably Adam and Eve could eat the, tree of, the fruit from the tree of life all the time, but they're not supposed to eat from the other tree, which then becomes the tree that they eat from. And they're exiled from the Garden of Eden because, simply, God said, 
Because if now they can discern between good and evil and eat the fruit from the tree of life, then they will live forever. And they, if we just determine what's good and evil based on their definition, that's bad. So we have to kick them out of the garden to protect the tree of life. And the Bible never says what kind of tree uh, the tree of life is or what kind of tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In American pop culture, we like to present Eve with an apple. Um, but that's absurd because I eat apples all the time. <laughs> and that tree is, you know, allegedly supposed to still be being guarded. Um, so these kind of mystical trees. However, I think there are some uh, reasons to suggest that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was something like an almond tree. There's something quite significant about this staff budding, blossoming, and producing the fruit of an almond and not an apple or a lilac or, I don't know, a cherry tree or something. Pomegranate, olive. I'm trying to think, what's like a Middle Eastern, like a Mediterranean fruit? Dates, figs, olives. Yeah, this makes sense. And, and, but almond is, almond is significant. So you may not know this. It's one of my favorite topics, but, and I'm not going to go get carried away, even though I want to. Um, there are sacred trees all throughout the book of Genesis. Um, you can read five or six different times. Moses, um, it says that Moses lives near the oaks of Mamre. M Moses makes covenants, and when he makes a sacred covenant, um, he plants a tree, a tamarisk tree. Um, trees are considered very sacred in the ancient world, um, kind of back before we knew that the earth was a globe in space going around the sun. Um, that's a rather new understanding of how the world works. And before that, for thousands and thousands of years, when they believed the earth was flat, um, they didn't understand that there's like outer space at all. So they had this understanding that you have the land, and then underneath the land there's water, because how else would you explain geysers and springs? And then, and then above us in the sky there must be water, because how else would it be blue and how could you explain rain? So they believed that there were tiny windows in this dome above us, and God and or God's angels once in a while open those windows and we get the rain. The water falls down. And so what holds this big hard firmament up above us? Well, it was the trees and, and, and depending on where you live it might be the mountains. But a tree was a sacred, a sacred symbol because um, its roots they believed went all the way down below the earth to where the water is and its branches and leaves stretched all the way up to the sky where God is, you know, where, where like the heavenly throne is. And so a tree kind of connected heaven and earth. So trees, there's sacred tree stories in all sorts of ancient Near Eastern literature, um, but especially in, in Genesis and the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And um, interestingly, when the Hebrews are rescued from Egypt into the wilderness, after they get to Mount Sinai, God gives them the law through Moses, um, you know, the Ten Commandments and, and a bunch of other kind of bylaws. <laughs> um, the last half of the book of Exodus is a very long and rather boring description for the constructing of a tabernacle. That word tabernacle doesn't mean anything often here in the West unless you're from Quebec, and then it's a swear word, I think. Yep, so I don't say it with a French accent, and then I think it's not offensive. But um, <clears throat> this tabernacle is actually... Um, a very important, significant, profound thing. That tabernacle is eventually replaced by the temple. Um, it is the place where God is said to live. And if you actually follow what happens in the book of Exodus, when God gives the instructions to build the temple, he gives it in seven stages. And there's seven days of creation, right? And when God creates, in Genesis 1, um, God creates by speaking, let there be light, let there be trees. Uh, and in the second half of Exodus, 
seven times God speaks the instructions. And the instructions for building the tabernacle actually follows the design of creation. That the building of the tabernacle is a building of the new heavens and the new earth or the new world. On day six in, in Genesis, uh, the creation story, God creates humanity and breathes into their nostrils. And if you read the sixth stage of building the tabernacle, God breathes his spirit into the artist who will design it. And on the seventh day in the Garden of Eden, God rests and declares Sabbath. And on the seventh day of the creation of the tabernacle, um, there's a long command about observing the Sabbath. And so it's actually mirrored, the two stories, but most um, of us readers would never notice. You would not be able to like read Exodus and be like, oh. But it's clear that here in the wilderness, they've left Egypt, a long ways away from the Garden of Eden, and God goes to Moses and all the people, and at the very beginning of this kind of story of constructing this tabernacle, God says, I want you to get everyone to gather together everything they own that has color or smell or beauty, scarlet, turquoise, gold, silver, purple, uh, and together with, and there's like incense and, and, and cinnamon and uh, special ointments and Essentially, let's pool all our resources together and build a garden here in the wilderness. And in the center of this tabernacle, this most holy sacred space, is a symbol of a tree. And I wanted to show you the um, description of it from Exodus, um, I think, 35. So on the next slide here, it says, this is God speaking to Moses. I want you to make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. The lampstand's base, branches, cups, flowers, and petals, that sounds like agrarian language for a lampstand, but we got petals and branches, um, should all be attached to it. It should have six branches going out from its sides, three branches on one side of the lampstand and three branches on the other side of the lampstand. One branch will have three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a flower and petal. The next branch will also have three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a flower and petals. So it will be uh, for the six branches that grow out of the lampstand. In addition, on the lampstand itself, there will be four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with its flower and petals. There will be a flower attached under the first pair of branches, a flower attached under the next pair, and a flower attached under the last pair. So it will be for the six branches that grow out of the lampstand their flowers and their branches will be permanently attached to it and the whole lampstand should be one piece of hammered gold. And so if we take this extremely literally, it would look like this. Um, and it's designed, if you read the, the whole description of the tabernacle, to be modeled after the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And inside this tabernacle tent that will follow them in the wilderness, the place of no life, will be the tree of life. And one day, once a year, the high priest could go in to this tree of life. And the tree of life has um, seven candles on it. And one of the most sacred duties of the priest is to make sure those candles stay lit. They, the candles are never allowed to go out. And that should immediately ring some bells for you because on Mount Sinai, Moses' first trip up that mountain, Moses encounters a burning bush. And this bush is, um, appears to be on fire, but it's never consumed. And it's on Mount Sinai, that same place, many years later, or probably not many years, actually, Moses returns, and that's where God speaks and gives the law. And the Hebrew word for bush is Sinai. And so here we have a tree, and in English we have many different words for tree or wood or bush. Like we got like lumber, timber, tree, twig, stick, log. We got lots. But in Hebrew, not really. There's like two. 
So the word Sinai, like bush and tree, are very linguistically connected. And so here, in the middle of the wilderness, there's this almond tree that appears to be on fire but is never consumed. It's the bush, it's the tree from which God speaks. The same bush that spoke to Moses, here we have with us in the wilderness, this tree. And once a year, the priest can go in and come back with like a message from God. And the message is always the same, you are forgiven. I will dwell with you now. Um, it's the Garden of Eden, right there in the wilderness. And here, the people camped all around it, longed to go back to Egypt, saying that's the place where the milk and the honey flowed. And so, this story that might seem small and insignificant, but to the, all the people who've never gotten to go into the tabernacle and see this firing tree that is made of almond blossoms, they don't get to see that. God says, give me 12 staffs. We'll bring them in. And then when we come out, watch, one of them has become an almond tree. It's really profound. It's that the tree of life that's supposed to be protected, either in Eden or inside the tabernacle, a branch of it is now put out before the whole community. See? Almonds. See? Life. See? And this, this symbol of, of outrageously surprising life will surely end our complaints will surely give us eyes to see that God is with us, Then he brought the whole Garden of Eden with him. And so maybe I'm not sure if, if you understand or if you ever have been connected to any um, Jewish ceremonies. Um, I've only been connected to a few and they were beautiful. But this tree um, is represented in Jewish tradition by the next slide, a menorah. And so on certain holidays, you could have one of those in your home and light them. Um, and so this is the tree of life. It's a sacred symbol, and it's an almond tree. This is a beautiful moment. Here we are in the wilderness. There's death all around. We just watched Korah and Abiram and Dathan and that whole group of folks get swallowed by an earthquake. We've seen a lot of death. We've seen a lot of suffering, a lot of complaints. But here we have also seen glimpses of life and hope and goodness. It reminds me of, and David um, referenced it in his set, and we sang about it, um, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel has seen great suffering. He has seen, um, he's been carried off naked and ashamed into exile. Uh, he's a priest. He's been brought far, far from the temple, and so he's very distraught. There's a lot of sorrow. There's a lot of suffering. A lot of asking God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? A sense that um, this political crisis, this war, means that we are done for forever. We can never go home. We can never go back. Our temple's been destroyed. Um, the Babylonians have won. And so here is this prophecy in Ezekiel 37 where it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. It sounds like a place of hopelessness and despair. It's just death. It's just bones was once alive, but those days are over. And he led me back and forth among them, like God made him walk through them. I wonder if he, the bones rattled as he stepped, or did they crunch because they were so dry. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And God asked me, son of man, can these bones live? And any um, one of us would have said, no, of course not. But the prophet said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he asked me, he said, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. 
I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin, and I will put breath in you, and you will come to life, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, tendons and flesh and skin, but there was no breath in them. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Speak to the wind, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, north, east, south, and west, O breath, and breathe into these slain ones that they may live again. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet. Here in the wilderness, as far as we can see, there's nothing but death. At this point in the book of Numbers, we've already been told we don't get to go into Canaan because of the spies' report. We don't get to go back to Egypt. We're here. It's a valley of dry bones. It's a place of death. It's a place of despair. And if, you're, if you misbehave, the ground might open up and swallow you and your children. So this is not a good place. It's not a place of life. But can these dry bones live? Could there be life in this valley? Could possibly, perhaps in this wilderness place, rocks gush forth with water? Sticks blossom forth with almond uh, fruit? Perhaps. There's another um, prophet, three, three prophets in the Bible who, who suffered a lot and who speak to suffering. And they're the three major prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And all three of them witnessed the exile. Um, they witnessed uh, the destruction of the temple, the Babylonian invasion, and then the Babylonians carry them away. Um, Jeremiah was left behind to weep in the ashes. Ezekiel was carried off. Um, <clears throat> and so Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, a book about just crying out to God in, in sorrow and suffering. And there's a very beautiful moment, actually, in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1, when God calls Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah's text. And he's a young guy, maybe 12 or 13, I think, maybe Katie's age. And God comes to Jeremiah, and this is what it, he says. This is chapter 1. This is the calling of the prophet, um, the author of Lamentations, the weeping prophet. It says, the Lord came to me, the Lord's word came to me, sorry, and said this. Before I created you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you a prophet to the nations. Ah, Lord God, I said, I don't know how to speak because I am only a child. The Lord responded, don't say I am only a child. Where I send you, you must go. What I tell you, you must say. Don't be afraid of them because I am with you to rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I am putting my words in your mouth. This very day I appoint you over the nations and empires to dig up and pull down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant. And then the test to see if the word has actually gone into Jeremiah's mouth. God speaks and says, Jeremiah, what do you see? And he has a vision. He says, I see a branch of an almond tree. So where God is, the tree of life is close by. What do you see, Jeremiah? In this time of crisis, in this time of despair, depression, hopelessness, what do you see? And the vision that he received was an almond branch. Perhaps what he was looking at was a glimpse of that lampstand in the temple. Perhaps what he saw was a glimpse of that staff of Aaron. 
but he saw with his own eyes this tiny symbol of hope. It reminds me, actually, um, I, I, I got to mention um, Jeremy Clager, but now I'm going to mention um, Kim Goodman. Uh, she inspired me. Um, oh, and I've just lost it. That is bad. It's okay. It's right here. On Instagram, not a very spiritual and holy place, but sometimes, there's a, a pastor, a woman. I don't even know her name. Her Instagram handle is The Walking Pastor, and she, she wrote a post exactly about this very thing the other day, and it immediately made me cry. Um, and I, I got, I think, Kim as well, perhaps. I don't remember exactly how I connected with her over it, but um, she writes this. She says, I'm preaching tomorrow, and I'm finding it difficult to write the sermon. In a previous life, I would have labeled my difficulty as a disconnection from God and gone on to berate myself for my inability to connect. Um, and this woman, um, learning a bit of her story from her account, I guess she's kind of pastoring there on the internet, um, that her and her husband have experienced um, infertility all their life, and um, she's had many miscarriages. And that's part of her, her story and part of the wound from which she heals. And so anyway, she says, But in the life I'm living right now, I have become aware that my difficulty in writing sermons isn't a result of disconnection, but rather from a deep connection, both with a God and a human experience that seem not to easily align with the texts I've been assigned to preach. She says, along with this dissonance comes a deep desire to be honest, that while I still believe God can be found lingering in, around, above, and through these pages of the Bible, um, I have become increasingly concerned that I might manipulate people by the way I weave together my words, which I'm abundantly aware is actually quite easy to do. She says, it was easier to preach in my previous life when I boldly proclaimed things like, God parted the seas for Moses, just have enough faith and he'll part the seas for you. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is on your side. And if you just believe and not doubt, you can ask for whatever you wish and God will grant it to you. It all sounded so convincing when I used to say it. And who wouldn't want to be convinced of such things? A God who makes a way, a God who, finds, who favors you, a God who grants you all the desires of your heart. The problem is, that I have now seen too many faithful people standing hopeful at the edge of the sea, only to be overtaken by armies or drowned in the seas that have failed to part. The problem is, I now know too much about crusades and colonization, genocide, and all the damage that follows around those who believe God is unarguably on their side. And the problem is, I've seen too many dreams prayed over that weren't delivered, and I'm really well acquainted with the impossibility of not doubting at all. So what am I left to proclaim? This is it, this is her proclamation. She says, I saw the sun rise after a storm, and while I can't give you the chapter and verse, I can tell you that God clearly proclaimed that this sort of thing still happens. My husband and I buried several caskets engraved with the names of our children, and I can't tell you how I know, but I do, that we didn't abandon them to the grave, but entrusted them to a wide-lapped nursing mother of a God. I left the 99 for the 1, and while I might not be able to convince you, I know I didn't lead the way, but only followed in the footsteps of a Savior who so clearly said, follow me. What am I left to proclaim? I'm left to proclaim a God who hasn't left me, the possibility of life after every death and a Savior whom I believe is worth following because he refuses to leave even one behind. I'm not sure this will fill up a 30-minute sermon, she says, but I can testify that it is the full gospel of hope that my life proclaims. 
And so I conclude this sermon with a story about Awaken. I remember about a year ago, it was a very difficult time. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> pastoring through a pandemic, pastoral succession. Oh, there was just so much. It was very hard. And I remember someone saying something, not to me, but of course I took it personally. Because guess what? If your mind can take something negatively, it will. It's called negativity bias. We all do it. So you could get a passive-aggressive text from someone. And if there's any possible way to read it as like a jab at you, you will. You'll do that. Even if they literally weren't even thinking about you. But it's just what we do. And someone made a comment that like, you know, back in the day at Awaken, I remember we could post like on the ACE page that someone had a need. And people would just come running. And it was like the glory days was kind of this talk. And, I, and I've experienced that too. My car broke down once on the 85th Street Bridge. And I cried and panicked, put my e-lights on and didn't even call anyone because I'm a millennial. I just went on Facebook and wrote on the ACE page, can anyone help me? My car's broken down on the bridge. And within three minutes, I saw people running. John Estabrooks running. Eric Reynolds, Megan Biggs came. She kind of lived at the, the Bunter Dock house there. And it was like within five minutes, I was like, this is Awaken. Wow, so great. And then I forgot about COVID and thought that the reason that doesn't happen any, anymore is because of me, <laughs> negativity bias. And so about a week ago, a dear friend of mine was moving to Bonas, and they messaged me and said, do you have a truck? Could you help me move? And I was like, oh shoot, I can't. Like I'm going into a meeting or something like it's last minute, I can't. And I was like, Ugh, I'll post it on the ACE page but I already have this deep narrative that I killed the glory days of Awaken, so I was like, oh, it's gonna feel so vulnerable posting this on the ACE page because no one will respond, and then it won't just be me, but it'll be my friend, and anyway, I wrote, can anyone help someone move into Bonas today? And within about 20 minutes, three vehicles, a, a big huge van of Eric Hartley's, uh, Dave King's big SUV, and then, and of course, Darcy was first. I have a hatchback. We could load a whole bunch of stuff in the hatchback, and it was like, oh yeah. Can these dry bones live? Yes. The answer is always yes. And I was convicted of my own negativity bias and realized that God said, um, just ask, just look, just see if there might not be blossoms and buds and almonds. Um, and so I think, uh, Dino, you were moved in like that day. And uh, it just gave me so much joy to see. Um, and then uh, a few days ago, I was hanging out in the garden having a meeting with Laddie and, and Dallas about how we could be more in the neighborhood. And the fridge sat there, and it was basically empty. There was a few sort of going rotten vegetables and not really anything else. And I had just stocked it the night before, so I was feeling a little grumpy. How dare people take the food we offered them freely? <laughs> <laughs> and as sitting there, you know, three or four or five um, seniors, more elderly people came. I don't know how far they walked, they didn't drive, and opened that fridge and paused and then left empty-handed. And I was like, oh, my good idea's failing. So sad. And then I went there yesterday to drop off some food, and uh, Jill and Nathan and Tammy were winterizing with insulation and plastic and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, you guys have been here like all day. Thank you. And then I opened the fridge, and it was packed full. And guess what was in it? Someone had made homemade pumpkin pies for Thanksgiving and went and filled the fridge. I have no idea who, I have a guess, um, but I don't know. And just the thought of like, what an abundance of generosity. Oh, I opened it looking for emptiness. I opened it looking for, you know, a Nikayla idea that failed or something. But instead, there's my, all these people working and this fridge full, and right now it's full. And I don't know, I just was like, oh yeah. The things I give my thoughts to, 
those are the gods that I worship. If I give it to death, if I give it to scarcity, if I give it to, to hopelessness, um, then that is my act of worship. And I want to confess my idolatry and offer my thoughts and my energy to the life that bursts here, to those bones that can rattle and come alive, to the tree of life that could be in the wilderness here with us. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so did you know that after this um, text in, in Numbers 17, the people were supposed to um, carry this Ark of the Covenant with them everywhere to remind them that God was with them. And they were supposed to put three things in this chest. One, a jar of manna to remember that God sustained us in the wilderness. Two, the two tablets of the law to remind us that we are not to live like we did in Egypt. <laughs> we are to be an alternative community with a new economy and a new way of being. And three, Aaron's staff. And it would stay in that Ark and it would perpetually blossom, always. And so let us, um, in conclusion, I was reminded this week of a poem by Mary Oliver. It's short, but it summarizes this miracle of almond branches. She says, here are the instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And so, can we be honest about our frustrations, our doubt, our disappointments, but also look for signs of life, and also be on watch for beauty and goodness? Yes, we can. And in the wilderness, we will see what we are looking for. And so um, let me pray for us a Thanksgiving prayer, and then Dallas will um, lead us in communion. Um, I wrote this prayer for the wilderness and for Thanksgiving Sunday uh, for, for all of us. It goes like this. God of the wilderness, God of our life-death-life life cycles, God of the feast, Thank you for the wild air we breathe. We inhale life that comes from beyond us. You call this grace. We exhale the breath that no longer serves us. You call this surrender. Thank you for this dance. Our lungs with the trees and the wind and the sky keep rhythm to. Thank you for the beating of our hearts. Ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. Thank you for this music, which we cannot hear. Thank you for the rivers that hydrate us. The rivers that course like arteries and veins across this earthly body we inhabit together. These rivers which course from your throne. Thank you for the connections between us that we cannot see. The way our nervous systems are communicating with one another in a language not our own. Thank you for the ways our brains are releasing endorphins in this very moment, facilitating a sense of belonging to one another. Thank you for the connections between us and all living things and all dying things connections we cannot see. Thank you for coming as a creature like us. If you could be contained in a human body, inhaling and exhaling, eating and drinking, may we see the holiness of bodies that breathe and eat and drink, shiver and sweat. You are with us in our living and you are present in our dying. And here now, you are present in the feast uh, we are about to partake in. Thank you for the microbial world that sustains us which we cannot see. Thank you for the soil that works tirelessly to turn death into life. Thank you that all of our food and everything we eat and wear and build our homes with comes ultimately from that dark soil of your harsh mercy. Thank you for the worms and the fungi that teach us that everything can and will be broken down, that nothing lasts forever and nothing stays dead. So thank you, our Lord, for the resurrection. 
Thank you that our loved ones who've died are right now in this very moment fully alive with you. You promised our ancestors that one day you'd wipe away every tear. You promised our ancestors that weapons would be melted into gardening tools and that there would be healing and feasting and intimacy. Thank you, creator and sustainer, that we don't have to wait for that final day. It has already begun. You rose up from your own grave, announcing the beginning of the end. You call this the gospel. The wiping of tears ceremony has already begun. The great table is set. So let this our feast be joined to those sure victories secured by Christ. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of your eternal feast. May this our gathering of friends, singing together, breathing together, and finally eating together a ceremonial meal made of your body and your blood fall like a great hammer blow, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts and stirring our imagination, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, and on the kingdom that is already indeed in our midst. For the resurrection of all things has already joyfully begun. Help us remember, Christ our brother, that Sunday is not the last day of the week, it is the first. We are ready for this beginning. Indeed, you have waited here for us. And so here we are. Thank you. <laughs>